Tonight we have a little extra work to do. We're going to touch a couple of bases we haven't touched for a while in this series. And a few of you, it's going to be brand new, so this is your first introduction. But it'll be a good week to be introduced, even though it's towards the end of the set. Um, We have been looking at times and seasons. Uh, We have learned what a biblical day is, what a biblical week is, what a biblical month is, what the feasts of Israel are, and also we've even come to conclude that we can tell from Scripture if we know what's going on and and, uh, apply some what we should have learned in the Old Testament to the Gospel of Matthew and Luke that we know when Christ was born uh, pretty precisely, I would say, um, and certainly... uh, not in December. So uh, we decided that, right? And we've talked about the Magi and that process, uh, and we've talked about Hanukkah and Purim, uh, and they are out, the, the feasts are outside of the parameters of the law of Israel that are celebrated, um, and whether or not why we, they uh, don't necessarily need to be in the church's calendar. But certainly the other ones have every reason to be in the church's calendar. They are not really... Uh, tied to national Israel's history because they were given before national Israel had a history. They were given in the law. They have a strong Christological elements, and so we have focused on those. And so we have looked at Passover. We looked at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We looked at the Feast of Pentecost. We looked at the Day of Atonement, Feast of Trumpet, and the Feast of Tabernacles and associated all of those with some very strong Christological elements. Uh, why are we doing times and seasons uh, is really tied into a uh, directive we have in a prophetic book that that is one of the things we're supposed to be alerted to and aware of what's going on around us. And that prophetic book is the book of Daniel. And this is going to draw us in. Today we're going to really look, I told you we're going to transition to the New Testament. We've already looked at Christ's birth. We looked at the coming of the Magi, associated those with the Feast of Tabernacles, with Hanukkah, uh, and then we are now going to look further on. And so to do that, we want to start in Daniel, though. Again, like a a base we've already touched in the past, but it's one that we want to address again and revisit so we understand why we're doing this. And to do that, I'm going to invite you, there's really three chapters that we're looking at, three passages that we want to focus in on. And uh, I've been kind of struggling of where to start and end all of this. Uh, because we have some information at various times given to us. But I want to, let's start in chapter 7. Daniel is given a vision that he doesn't understand. He asks for instruction in this, and he is given that. He's given an interpretation in the middle of chapter 17, go to verse 15. He's grieving his spirit. His visions of his head troubled him. Doesn't that make you feel better? To know that, Daniel's visions troubled Daniel. Uh, they bothered him too. So if you re- read this and go, boy, this blah, 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 that's okay. Um, they bothered him too. And so God understood the dilemma that he was facing and sent him uh, an interpretation. And so he uh, received that interpretation uh, and uh, from heaven. And he gives them, and we talk about the beasts of the earth, the four kings, all of this, the saints of the Most High. And uh, we can look through all of this. We're really going to jump ahead to the things that are talking about the last days. Uh, Because out of all the things that Daniel has seen, he has seen the rise in, in his vision. He's seen the rise and the fall of Babylon, of the Medes and the Persians, of the Greeks, and the coming to power of the of the Romans. He's seen all of that, and God has clearly laid that out before him. And those are some of the other visions. He has the visions of the four beasts, the vision of the two beasts. We have all of that laid out. But there's something in this fourth beast in the latter days that is that's, we can't put our finger on very easily because it doesn't fit anywhere in Roman history as we identify it in, in historical terms. And that is that these are... Uh, 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 the little horn is what you'll often hear it referred to as the little horn that rises up. And that, so let's begin reading verse 23. And you'll, you'll know immediately when we come to the passage why we're studying times and seasons, times and 
and, uh, because this is going to be referenced in this passage. It says, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from the other kingdoms, shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and bring it to pieces. Um, that is the Roman Empire. No problem identifying that. It correlates with everything else we've seen in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a statue uh, with, the, uh, with all that's involved there in the uh, iron. Verse 24, the ten horns are ten kings who shall, that's future, arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. This is the little horn, the eleventh horn. And he shall be different from the first ones. And so he, so we have a different beast with a different horn, eleventh horn, that grows up late. Um, when it talks about the little horn, we're not talking about small, we're talking about young. The term here is that it's recent. It is going to be the last horn horn of this uh, deteriorating Roman Empire. And now it's going to describe this entity in verse 25. I'm sorry, in, uh, yes, in verse well, 24, I left out one phrase, and shall subdue three kings. Um, and we can identify that as a kingdom that, and the word there is an agricultural term, uh, not subdue in terms of conquer them, but kind of make space for himself in there. Uh, and uh, we've identified these historically in the past in my messages and stuff as uh, France, England, and Spain as the three kings that were pushed aside to make room for this new empire that is going to rule the earth, and that would be the United States. So here we have a description now of this entity called the Little Horn of Daniel. Verse 25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. And that word persecute is wear them out. It is not violent. It is gradual. And hopefully in your margin, perhaps you have that, to wear them out. And shall, I stopped right before the passage we're looking for, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. But the court shall be seated, they shall be, take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion, the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High, that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And so this is that end times framework that we know it's the last one because it says that it's the one that's going to be destroyed by God himself to establish Christ's kingdom. And in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we have a stone that um, was not made by human hands that breaks it to pieces at that point of the ten toes of the very fragile uh, mix of the mixture of iron and clay at the very end of Nebuchadnezzar's vision. And so this is a repetitive thing that we see in Daniel that helps us identify the end times. But one of the things we are supposed to notice about this final kingdom is their intention, their desire to change something. And that what they want to change are the times and laws. They want to change times and laws. This has been variously interpreted over history, and I don't propose that I have a better or the ultimate interpretation of what this means, but I would propose to you that this is directly connected to something already given to us in Daniel. And so let's go to backwards a little bit to Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel's asked to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Daniel, in his testimony to Nebuchadnezzar, uses this interesting phrase. We'll pick up in verse 20 of Daniel 2. It says, Daniel answers that, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. And he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. And so in Daniel's description of God, he describes all of the wisdom and knowledge of God. But notice the phrase, one of the things that God does is he changes times. He's the one that changes times. He's the one that changes seasons. He's the one that knows the secret dark things. He's the one that, that is really has the wisdom of the world. He has the knowledge 
of how everything works. And during this season of this entity coming upon the scene, they will seek to usurp that role. That no longer is it God who holds all the secrets of the world, of the creation. It is this entity that does it. And we are the ones that think we can change the times and we can change the seasons or the laws of nature. We can, we can literally manipulate them, is literally the term there. And so God can manipulate time and seasons, the times, and that means the situation, the circumstances of life. He can change those. He can manipulate those. He can raise up kings. He can destroy kings. But this entity says, no, we're going to take on all of that. All these things that are attributed to God by Daniel in Daniel chapter 2, this entity says, no, I'm taking those things over. I'm the one that's going to set up kings and kingdoms. I'm the one that's going to decide the seasons and the situations of life. I'm the one that's going to be the, know the secret things and the dark things, and, and I'm going to be all that for all people. They're going to usurp these things that, God, that Daniel says only God has these, but this entity is going to usurp these things. So our focus is simply on one aspect of this, and that is God says, I change the times and the seasons. And so we have looked at these and said, well, if we really want to identify God as the one who defines time and seasons to the point that we define what a day, a week, a month is, what these are, when we are to celebrate these and these events, then we look to God's word, we don't look to the world. Particularly in these last days when that entity is upon us that has fulfilled all of these things. And so they, they're really speaking against God when they claim that they know the secret things. They know how everything came into being. And yes, I think we're referencing evolutionary thought. I think we're referencing Copernican theory of, of the universe. We're referencing uh, all these things, not just worship patterns of the church being dictated to us by this entity but rather so instead of going to god and saying how should we celebrate these events we go to this entity um, and say how do we how should the church do these things it wants to usurp god's place in your thinking and in your life in the circumstances of life in the seasons of life in the uh, ruler, the authorities in life, all these things that are in God's realm, including the secret things. What were some of the secret things listed in Scripture? Do you know? Where were some secret places of knowledge that Job and other wisdom literature attributes to God and God alone? That now men say, we know that. Do you know any of those? The unborn. What goes on in the womb of a woman? The Bible says, God understands the secret things that go on in there. But not anymore. We claim to know that. And we're not just talking about uh, abortion. We're talking about all the aspects of birth control. We're talking about genetics and all that's going on with that um, in, in the realm in our modern era. And, and by the modern era, I'm not talking about last few years. I'm talking about for 50 years, 60 years, 70 years. We've been playing around with genetics uh, and manipulating them. Uh, and, but in these last few years, it's gotten extraordinarily bad. And remember, this is what caused God to destroy the earth with a flood. Was man, man's genetic makeup was being manipulated by the, Neph by the fallen angels, the Neph creating the Nephilim. And so... We are at this time where they are taking God, things attributed by God directly. Daniel says, this is God's secret knowledge. And this entity wants to usurp that. And they're going to change times and law. And the saints need to watch out because uh, it's not your friend, they're your enemy. They are going to target you at one point. It's just not yet. Their goal now is to wear you out. And at one point they're going to... Um, make you their enemy, target number one. So this is why we are studying this. This is the, the biblical reference, why it is important to be a part of our understanding of our times today, because this entity is here now, and it is influencing the church to this degree, and it is calling you away from following after God and his word, and calling you to 
go to them to find out when you should be doing whatever you're doing. That's not only for the church, it's also for Israel. And Israel knows this. And so if you get a, go to Israel, um, is the Sabbath the Sabbath of the scriptures? No, we've already discerned that, right? The Sabbath isn't the Sabbath of the scriptures. The Sabbath of the scriptures are tied to the new moon, uh, which is probably the full moon and not the dark moon. And we find out that they're not tied to it at all, that they, they, they celebrate Saturday, which Saturday isn't the Sabbath. It's not the seventh day of God's week, of God's month. So we learned all of that in our definitions. And so we are changing these laws for, for, and it's being imposed upon God's people where they are usurping God's place in just your identification. So you identify today as the day to worship the sun, right? It's Sunday, not the Lord's day. And you identify it as Saturn day, the day to worship the, the planet Saturn. Um, and so we have all of our days of the week attributed to false gods of the Greek and Romans. Interesting, isn't it? Unless you're in the country of Greece, and then it's not. Uh, it, they're not attributed to that. We learned that when we were in Greece. And so in the Greek language, they aren't attributed to any of their own gods. Isn't that fun? interesting? Kind of a fun little fact there for you. The origin of those titles for your days of the week are, were, were recognized as being uh, pagan by Greek Christians when the church took over Greece. So all those Corinthians, Thessalonians, Philippians, all of those people that Paul wrote those letters to had such an influence on Greece, they abandoned those names for the days of the week. But we have resurrected them. We are guilty of that. So this is real in our time. They want to change the times. They want to usurp God's place. Now, we, I said we're going to move to Jesus, okay? So we're going to move to Jesus because... Um, we are called, this is just why we're studying it, just a renewal. Let's go a couple of chapters later, and we're going to have what's called the 70 weeks prophecy. And that's in chapter 9. And again, um, a lot of information here. We're not going to be able to plow through all of it for sure, but I do want to show you a timeline that should uh, clarify a few things. Why is it important we know when Jesus died? And that's the question tonight. We're going to try to figure out when Jesus died. Not what time of year. We know when that was. That was tied to Passover. Uh, and probably not the Passover Israel celebrating today, but probably two weeks prior to it or following it. Um, and so we're coming to this. And let's pick up verse 24 of Daniel 9. It says, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So, we've got to get all the way to the point of anointing Jesus as king. And we're not talking about the triumphal entry here. And so know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. After the 62 weeks, Messiah will, shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city, the sanctuary, the end of it shall be the flood, and till the end, war and desolations are determined. So it's going to stop right there, because the rest is way into the future. Well, at least in the future for us, way into the future for what we're talking about tonight, which is Christ's death. So, the prophecy of the, seven, of the 70 weeks is divided up into seven, and that's seven sevens. Don't get confused by the term week. We're not really talking about seven weeks of time. We're talking about seven sevens. Seven sept... What is it? Septi septids. Septides? So seven sevens. So how many years is that? Se seven times seven. Seven sevens of years is 49 years, right? So there's going to be seven, and then there's going to be how many? 62, all right? And 62 sevens, now it's getting a little harder, right? Is equal to how many years? 400 and what? You sure about that? Did you use your, your brain? Really? He's from my generation. 
How many of you were looking on your little thing or pulling out your phone? All right, 62 times seven. So um, we end up with, with 69 sevens. Something's gonna happen after 69 sevens. Let's, let's um, add these up, what do we got? All right, so 483 years, something's going to happen. And that something is not Christ's birth. Remember I told you that our whole calendar is screwed up of what year it is. You think it is 2021, but you are wrong. Because your calendar, and it's not because Christ was born at 3 B.C. and not at 1. Okay, there is no zero, by the way, right? Remember that. There is no zero, so you went from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. But we know that Jesus Christ was born 3 B.C., September 11th, you know, between 6 and 8. Um, <laughs> some of you are going, what? You know that? Yes. Uh, you have to reference the podcast to get that information. Uh, so, but this isn't Christ's birth we're talking about. Let's look at the passage again. It says, after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off but not for himself. That we're, that we're really, what we're really looking for as a historical marker that should have set the calendar of the church and the calendar of modern history is when Messiah is cut off. Not when Messiah is born, but when Messiah dies. His death, burial, and resurrection is the premier event in the history of the world. And we know exactly, Daniel knew, hundreds of years beforehand, exactly when Christ was, not when he was going to be born, when he was going to die. He knew exactly when his death was going to occur. Now, the problem is, is that 483 years from when? Well, we're told. So here's what it says. It says that from the going, and that's back in verse 25, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, uh, this gets us into the books of what? What two books? Ezra and Nehemiah. Those are the two historical books in your Old Testament that will give the account of when uh, Ezra is, is predominantly about the return of Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. It is, completed under, uh, it is completed, and then Nehemiah comes in and rebuilds the walls. Okay. How long do you suppose that process took? Just, just guess. 49 years. That is exactly right. See, he is so... He, he, it's our generation. We're just sharp as tacks, even in our, in our dotage. Okay? So, the verse was accomplished. Now... Do we know when this went forth? Do we know when the command went forth to rebuild Jerusalem, the process of which was 49 years? Well, there is some discussion about that. So I brought the little book that has all the discussion about that. Uh, it's likely that it happened in the reign of Artaxerxes I. So now we have between 464 is when Artaxerxes I came into power, and he goes through to 424. Remember, you're B.C., and so it goes down as you get closer to Christ. Okay, so, so that's his reign. He reigned for about 40 years there. And, and uh, so we have this range. You might say, well, 483, 464, we're getting close. Well, we know that it was, uh, he had been king for a little while, so we're really pressing it probably closer to about 4. 71 to 74, somewhere in there. No, sorry, I went up. I'm supposed to go down. Sorry, sorry, sorry. 450, <laughs> I got to subtract seven. Sorry, 457 approximately is what we're looking at as when it went forth. Now remember, there's no zero. So, and we don't, I don't know if this is exact that we know this, that this is when the decree went out, uh, but certainly Israel, when it happened, knows when it happened, and they could have very easily just boom and said, oh, according to Daniel, this is the day we got a mark in our history, 
And it's something Israel should have put in her history very strongly. For no other reason than they're rebuilding their temple. So we have, but, but it's been lost. Okay, a lot of this information uh, we extrapolate from secular sources, not from, from the scripture and not from uh, Israel's uh, sources. And so we look at this and we, we have an idea when Artaxerxes the first was there. So we're at 457. So that takes up 457 of these 483 years, right? Okay, let's do the math. Let's subtract. What do you got? How close are we to Christ's death? All right, if, if, if we're looking at around 26, if Christ was born 3 B.C., okay, and we're looking at 26 A.D., how old is he? About 29. What does Luke say he is about, that everyone thought he was about? It's about 30. Now, about 30 means you could be like 28. You see, Andrea's about 30. You know, 28 to 32, somewhere in there, right? That's about 30. Aren't you about 30? Right? Who else is about 30? 28 to 32, you're 35, you're not about 30, you're about 40. You round up to 40, dude, it's over. Kiss your 30s goodbye, <laughs> they're gone. Daniel, what are you? Yeah, you're about, you're about 30. Yeah. Wake up, wake up, Paul, wake up. You're about 30, you are 30. Okay. So, um, pretty accurate, Right? Give or take a year in here, he's about 30. So 26, 27, 28 AD is about the, approximately the time that we should be looking for the evidence of Christ's sacrifice. This is the historical marker that our calendar should have been marked to. Our measure of years should not have been by Christ's birth, it should have been by Christ's sacrifice and his resurrection. So what year is it, if 26 is correct? You can't subtract 26 from 2021. Oh, 1995, come on, help me out. It's 1995, right? It's the 90s again. <laughs> All of you just felt like, oh, I just got to be 26 years younger. <laughs> no, it doesn't work like that. Uh, and so that's what our calendar should be looking for. Now, why is that important in prophetic literature? Anybody know why it's important that it's not the year 2000 yet? Okay, we have a, a scripture that says a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day in, in God's reckoning of time. And the theory has been out there for some time, this is nothing new by a long shot, that when you go back into the created order, that it took six days to create the heavens and the earth, that this, and then a seventh day of rest, that if the seventh day of rest is the thousand-year millennial kingdom after Christ comes back, that that would be the rest for creation, uh, the Sabbath rest that Paul talks about in Romans uh, for Israel, where Israel's on the re, re, renewed earth, and we're with Christ. Um, and so we have that thousand-year rest comparable to the seventh day of creation, that then the six days of creation would correlate with 6,000 years of history between um, creation and the millennial kingdom. Now, uh, that might not mean too much to you, but uh, most of the biblical authors look at the pre-Christ history as being about 4,000 years, and so that makes post-Christ history about 2,000 years, if that theory holds any water. And again, these numbers are hard to come up with because we're stretching ourselves back, and we don't know how long 
Adam and Eve were in the garden before there was sin. Uh, we, we don't have that information. We don't know if that really started the clock or if it was started at creation itself or if it was started when there was sin or if it was, start, you know, where that clock starts of what the th- years begin, we don't really know because it's just a theory. It's not in, you're not going to find a biblical directive for this. There are some information we could tally together and kind of come up with this theory. But it's interesting because we have the knowledge that there is going to be the coming of Christ. So Christ's death is a very important date to get because it is so strongly connected to prophetic timetables. And so I remember in the 1980s and 90s, um, I remember Jack Van Impe and all these other guys, oh, the year 2000, big year, 2000, big year, 2000. Well, it wasn't 2000. It was the 1970s. They were off by almost 30 years. Because we took A.D. as being something important, but it wasn't. It was not the biblical date that we're supposed to go by. Daniel says the date that you're supposed to mark, the the, the year that's supposed to be the, the pinnacle year, the year that everything pivots on, is Christ's death. And that we set all of our understanding on Christ's death as the year zero. That that is the, or year one. That that is year one. Not his birth, which we find out wasn't in year one either. It was in 3 BC, so we even got that wrong. Uh, But we, but all of these prophecy teachers were all excited about Y2K. Not just because of the computer glitch and all that, but because they were pre- of this theory that the earth would be about 6,000 years when Christ comes home, uh, comes back for us, and establishes the kingdom for 1,000 years, and that would correlate with 2,000 years. So 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham, 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ, 2,000 years from Christ to the millennial kingdom, and 1,000-year rest. That was their concept. And uh, it was a big, big theory back in the turn of the century, not this century, the last century, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was a big thing that went out there. And that was where the pre-millennial, uh, pre, pre-millennial position came forward in Christendom, was really born out of that concept and through uh, Darby and a few others. And so, but again, they, they messed up because they didn't Note that the historical event that you're supposed to be going by is not his birth, but his death. That's when you start your calendar for days and centuries. Now, we have a problem here because we only have 69 weeks, right? But there's 70. So there's one left over. So there's a 1 times 7. And that equals Daniel, little Daniel. One times seven. Oh, thank you. Flashcards. It's all about flashcards. So there's still seven years for Israel that's after Christ. Well, let's go to Daniel and see what to do with this in the vision of this, uh, of the 70 weeks. So let's pick up verse 26 again. It says, After 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people, notice that, of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Uh, Notice it is not the prince who is to come who does this. Who is it? The people of the prince who is to come. So we're talking about a people group come in and destroy Jerusalem after Jesus Christ's death. This is a prophetic reference to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., Uh, And so that is a historical event. So we have Christ's death happening right here. Now we have a whole series of things before we get to the last week that aren't part of this calendar. And so we have, first of all, Christ is going to die. Then you're going to have the destruction of the Jerusalem by a people out of which the prince who is to come is going to come. And then it says the end shall be with 
flood, uh, uh, shall be with a flood, the end of Jerusalem. Uh, and, and the siege on Jerusalem was three and a half years, uh, from 67 to 70 A.D., started under a guy named Cestius. It was completed under Titus. And it fulfills exactly what's described here and in Revelation chapter 12. And it says, until uh, the end, and we have a translation problem here, until the end, war and desolations are determined. You have until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And that's really not a good translation of the words we have there in Hebrew. Uh, it should be until the end, war and desolations are to continue. So there's a gap here, and that gap is going to be filled between 62 and or 69, between 69, because we have 69 here, and 70, there is a gap. And in that gap, it says that there will be wars and desolations. Oops. Until we get to the end. So until the end, wars and desolations are going to be the norm. So from the time of Christ's death till the time of the millennial kingdom, till his return, is going to be characterized by wars and desolations. Is there anywhere else in the Bible where it tells us that's what's going to go on between when Christ rose and comes again? Anywhere else? Revelation, Revelation tells us that. Where else? Matthew 24 tells us that. Luke. We have lots of passages in the New Testament that say, Jesus says, I'm going to go away, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, and people are going to hunt you, there's going to be wars, there's going to be famines, there's going to be pestilence, there's going to be earthquakes in various places. Don't worry, the end is not yet. Because wars and desolations are determined until the end. This is the characterization of the entire church age. There's going to be wars, famines, pestilence, death, false prophets, all those things that we call the four horsemen. Okay, that's in Revelation 6. And so all that goes on during this, but that's not the end. Now we get to the next verse where we get to the last week. So this is going on. Fall of Jerusalem, wars and desolations. Now we have the last week. The last seven years before the millennial kingdom. Verse 27. Then he, who is the he of verse 27 in Daniel 9? The prince. He is the prince. I would contend with you the prince is the man of sin. You know him as the Antichrist. The prince shall confirm a covenant with many, not just with Israel, but with many nations. And in fact, Daniel later on says it's going to be all the nations except for Jordan. The country of Jordan. All the Middle East nations except for the country of Jordan are going to be involved in this. He shall be confirmed a covenant for how long? One week. How long is a week? Seven years. Wow. So the last seven years, the 70th week, Daniel's 70th week, you'll hear prophecy teachers talk about Daniel's 70th week. They're waiting for this event when the man of sin has a covenant with Israel and her neighboring countries with the exception of Jordan. Um, it, it's described as as um, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon, I think is the exact phrase used in Daniel. But that's the country of Jordan today encompasses those. And so he's going to confirm a covenant for one week. In the middle of the week, he's going to bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. He's going to have abominations. He's going to make desolate. He, and uh, even till the consummation, that's the end, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So when this finishes... This seven years finishes, then there will be Christ's coming to make his kingdom. So we'll have the thousand-year kingdom. At the end of this seven years, also we call the seven years of wrath, or the time of Jacob's trouble. Um, modern theologians for the last 120 years have wrongly called it the tribulation. Uh, the Bible never calls it that. Never calls it that. The day of the Lord, sometimes it is called. The day of wrath, the, day of, uh, the, the time of Jacob's trouble, um, and the time of desolation here in Daniel. And so 
This is what we're waiting for, the 70th week. So this prophecy is 69 70ths completed. But it's even more than that because all of this happened too. Christ died, Jerusalem fell, there's been war and desolations for 2,000 years almost. Hasn't been 2,000 years yet. I know it's 2021, but it's not. It's 1995, maybe 94. So why does this matter to my 2,000-year clock, calendar, not clock anymore? We're up to a calendar. Why do I want to include this seven years? Well, if we take that seven years and we say, well, if the earth is going to be about 2,000 years from Christ to now, and we're, and we're like 2024, 2025, 2026, somewhere in there, um, we're real close to 2,000. We're, we might be over 2,000 because you have to subtract seven from 2,000 because this is part of this age. This is not part of the millennial kingdom. That comes later. So you've got to subtract these seven years. Which puts us where? Imminent. It puts you now. This year. Gets you a little excited? It gets you like real close. Certainly within a few years. Now I grew up with prophecy teachers that told me, man, 2000, 2000, 2000. I'm like, man, I'm graduating from you know, college in 84, I'm graduating from seminary in, sorry, 85, I graduated from college, 87 from seminary, Uh, I'm barely going to get started in the ministry and Christ is going to come back because it's going to be the year 2000. I didn't know that it was actually the 1970s and I was going to have 30 years in the ministry or more because we're still going. And again, this is Exciting, but when we correlate that with the other evidences of Scripture, we see that we should expect perilous times right now and a great falling away. And what else are we looking for? What does Thessalonians tell us to look for? The man of sin will be revealed, the guy who's going to make the covenant with Israel and her neighbors. And a lot of people are excited about Trump being that person, the man of sin, but he doesn't fit the other qualifications of that because he was making these deals between Israel and some of her neighbors, wasn't he? But that was just laying a groundwork. He didn't finish his job. He didn't finish that because it's, he's not the one. He doesn't meet the other, the other um, descriptions of the man of sin at all by Daniel and by Thessalonians and by, other, and by Revelation. And so he doesn't match that. But people are getting excited when that started. Uh, But when we look at our calendar, if our calendar is right, and we had started it the right year, the year of Christ's death, we would be really excited about things right now, saying, boy, it's the 1990s. We should be thinking about the end of this church age, 2,000 years. And, and so that's why Christ's death matters, is because it is the marker in biblical calendar of history, not his birth. Any questions, comments? I did a lot of material tonight. I threw at you in rapid succession, but I thought you were up to it. We'll find out if you guys are just lost when you leave here. What is he talking about? Any questions? Man, I did a great job. The 11th horn. Um, Biblically, the only empires biblical prophecy is interested are the ones who have control of Israel. It's the only ones they're interested in. Yeah, the, the Mongol Empire was huge. It was the biggest one, land-wise, at least. But it never dipped down and had control of Israel. Never. Okay? And so, um, biblically, they're not going to pick up... The, those aren't on the radar because the radar's epicenter is Jerusalem. So if you, so you had to be on the blip, you had to be in the range of you're going to influence Israel... And so the Mayans, the Incas, the Chinese dynasties, none of those show up in biblical prophecy because they don't have to do with Israel. 
and that's the focal point of all Old Testament prophecies. And um, the fact of the, of the horn displacing three countries, and the word there, like I said, was an agricultural term. It's what you do if you want to plant a new plant where there's other plants nearby, and their roots are in the way. And so you would dig that out, huh? Probably. And so you would dig that out, you would push back the roots and put that one in. You're not, you're not supplanting three, you are, you are invading the territory of three other countries. And again, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream had went down all the way to ten toes, right? So we can divide the Roman Empire into ten and I would, cons- I would even contend that they are east and west. That there are five eastern ones and five western ones that we could divide the Roman Empire into and Greece and then would have been part of the eastern side because they're east of Rome and western. So I-, I would look at those five parts of the Roman Empire that are the western side and we find that... Uh, they would be inclusive of what we would know as Spain, Britain, and France would be three of the five of the western part, including Italy, unless Italy is part of the eastern. Some people put it as part of the eastern side, um, and Germany. And so we're looking at those as the main characters that we're looking at. Uh, Most prophecy teachers you're going to engage in are saying we're looking for a revived Roman Empire. I've heard that all my life. And nowhere is that in Scripture. The, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar just keeps deteriorating all the way down to the toes. You don't see a revival at the end. It just gets worse and worse as you go, and more and more fragile as you go. And so uh, the ten toes are the remnants of the Roman Empire, and the United States is born out of that out of those. Um, Not only geographically did we take over territory that belonged to France, Great Britain, and Spain, right? That is our country, three Roman territories. And so uh, we we not only did that, but our, our concept of government is Roman. What was the Roman concept of government? A republic. We are the Republic of the United States of America. We are not Democrats, really. We are re- <laughs> Forget Democrats or Republicans. We are not a, a, a democracy. We are a republic. That's what our nation is. We are, we are built ourselves like the Roman concept of government, that you have officials that you send to represent you in a centralized government. And that is Roman. That's where we got most of those concepts and so we are not only born out of those, we made our space inside of those three countries, but we also got all of our concepts of government uh, really from the Roman period and brought them in. And we model much of our activity in, in the Roman model. What made Rome great? Do you know? What made Rome great? Besides their government, just, just practical things. Commerce. How did they develop commerce? They built incredible infrastructure. Not just roads, cities, aqueducts, everything. They built infrastructure up the wazoo. It was, it's still impressive today. Okay. What else? Very powerful, very well organized, very well equipped military. That could move faster than anyone else. It was really their speed how quickly they could get in and out of battles and their techniques and strategies. And so we we see a lot of those same themes in the development of our country. Uh, We are very Romanish uh, in how we approach ourselves as a a country. And so the little horn, uh, but it does different. We are different from Rome. It is different from the other ten toes because it says we're different than them. So there is a difference, but there's still that connection back to that. Does that help? Um, if, if, if England, France, and Spain hadn't 
basically claimed all of, all of this territory we call the United States, um, we, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation because that's, I think, absolutely necessary to identify this 11th horn. A young empire that made its way by within three of the former territories of the Roman Empire. Good? All right, let's pray. You can always ask me more stuff afterwards. We won't keep everybody. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for this day, and we thank you for time and your word together. Uh, Lord, we recognize that we have been heavily influenced by a world that wants to usurp your place, that claims to know all the secrets of the universe, uh, of the atom, of the womb, of the genetics, all of this we claim. Uh, but Lord, we know that it is you who holds all those things. That it's you who changes the times and the seasons. It's you that declares when we ought to worship and who and how. And Lord, we pray that you might help us in the transition from worshiping as, as, as modern man has told us to, to worshiping how you have told us to. Lord, we pray not only for here in this assembly, but for your church universal, that we might have that discernment to recognize this wearing down of, of your church, of your people, uh, to be almost unrecognizable in terms of how we worship and, and when we worship. And Lord, help us to correct our not only our calendar, our, our clocks, but even... Uh, our vocabulary, that we might give you the honor and the glory for your creation and for your work in us. Lord, help us be faithful to your coming. We're excited about its, about its uh, proximity, but we also, Lord, know that it's going to be very difficult in these last days. You've warned us of that. You've told us to prepare for that. And Lord, help us to stand and count the cost and take up our cross and follow you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.